0: and work of the holy spirit and we pray for his presence and help now in both the preacher and the hearer that as your word goes forth that it would go forth with clarity and with power and with effectiveness to save and to sanctify and to bring glory to Christ, because that is what the Spirit himself delights in, glorifying your Son, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Well, please do have Ecclesiastes chapter 2 open in front of you as we come to verses 12 to 26 this morning. And It's been a a couple of weeks since we were last in Ecclesiastes, but hopefully you recall what we've been seeing in the first couple of chapters of this really amazing book of the Bible. Uh, The teacher is speaking to us about life under the sun. Uh, That is, he's speaking to us about life here on earth in this fallen creation. What is it like to live in this world in which we find ourselves? That's what the teacher wants to teach us about. And he sums it all up with this one particular word, which in the ESV is translated as vanity. And what he means is that life Here on earth, in this fallen creation, is fleeting. It is elusive. In this life, we desperately want to grasp hold of things. We want to cling on to them. We want to find in them some level of permanence, some degree of substance, some measure of substance and significance. And yet life just doesn't seem to go like that, does it? No, life slips through our fingers. And throughout our lives, things come and then, a little while later, things go again. Nothing really seems to last. Nothing really seems to satisfy us here. Nothing seems to bring us any lasting gain here on earth in this fallen creation. And at this point in the book, the teacher is telling us why he is so convinced of this outlook on life. And he's convinced of it because throughout his own life, he has tried his level best to find gain under the sun. That is, he has tried to find lasting joy and satisfaction here on earth and yet he failed miserably time and time again. So in verses 12 to 18 of chapter one, he tried to find gain in wisdom, and yet he failed. Then in chapter two, verses one to 11, he tried to find gain in pleasure. Once again, uh, he failed. And he's going to keep on looking. He's still searching for something here on earth. Something in this fallen creation. Which is going to give him the sense of lasting joy and satisfaction for which his soul thirsts. And in these verses to which we turn this morning, this search for meaning, joy, significance, salvation in the things of this world continues. And yet there's something new that the teacher introduces into the discussion here. Uh, There's something in this section of Ecclesiastes that the teacher has not really mentioned yet. Uh, It is the elephant in the room, if I can put it like that. And this elephant in the room makes its rather awkward presence felt in the section we're looking at this morning. The elephant in the room is, of course, death. And in mankind's desperate search, For lasting fulfillment under the sun. Death is the ultimate obstacle. That's why we don't like to think about it. That's why we don't like to talk about it. Because death has this tendency of just turning up uninvited. And rearing its ugly head. And making a mockery of our schemes for earthly joy. We avoid talking about death by treating it as taboo. We sidestep the topic with the use of euphemisms. We try and make light of it with the use of humor. When we have to go to a funeral, we have this strange tendency, don't we, to want to just dress everything up with flowers. And it's all a way of trying to avoid the reality of death. One writer describes it like this. He says, it's like your life... Is a mansion with a terrify- terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself, to distract yourself from this terrifying hole of death. And the teacher is not going to allow us to do that. He's not going to allow us to ignore death and act as if it's not there. He's going to make us consider this reality of death head on as he continues this search for lasting joy and fulfillment here on earth in this fallen creation. And in these verses, death, you'll see he's described to us as the great leveler. The great leveler. Uh, There are two ways in which we see that is the case. Firstly, notice this, that death makes wisdom vanity. Death makes wisdom vanity. Now, of course, the teacher has already talked about the vanity of wisdom already, back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. But he comes back to this topic of wisdom now for a second look, and for some further reflections on wisdom. And at the start, he wants us to realize he's not saying that wisdom is utterly pointless. So he's not against wisdom. Don't hear him wrong. Far from it, there is great value in wisdom, he tells us. He says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And indeed, if we take it that Solomon is the author both of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, which may well be the case, then we know already how highly prized wisdom is in Solomon the teacher's eyes. Proverbs chapter 4, we read this, Get wisdom. Get insight and do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. And the teacher is very clear with us. It is better to be wise than to be foolish. Or as he puts it, it's better to walk in the light than to just try and stumble around in the dark. And yet the question that the teacher is grappling with here in Ecclesiastes is, does wisdom, for all its benefits, does wisdom bring you lasting joy and satisfaction here on earth, under the sun, in this fallen creation? By being wise, do you find gain under the sun? And the answer is, of course, no, you don't. And the reason is very simple. Death makes wisdom vanity. So he continues, And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. It's a very simple point, isn't it? The teacher is saying whether you're wise or a fool, you will still die, and eventually you will still be forgotten. And so in the long run, wisdom does not change that. This is the difference in the outlook between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, isn't it? If you read Proverbs, you'll see that it tells us that generally speaking, and with all other things being equal, foolish people die sooner than wise people. It's true, isn't it? And yet Ecclesiastes has got a a different outlook. And Ecclesiastes is written to remind us that yes, though there are those benefits of wisdom that we enjoy in this life, nonetheless, wise people will still die in the end. Death is this great leveler. Death makes wisdom vanity. And still the teacher's search for gain continues under the sun. He's tried wisdom and that hasn't worked. Earlier on, we've seen how he's tried hedonism. That didn't work. He's tried materialism. And that didn't work. And the next place that he's going to look in this search is in work itself, toil, labor, working hard, being industrious. Maybe that's the answer that he's been looking for. Maybe, just maybe. Lasting joy, lasting fulfillment will be found through a life devoted to the virtue of good old, hard work, which will bring into his life so many accomplishments a great sense of fulfilment and achievements, as well as, of course, a great reputation, and then riches to enjoy in retirement. It's an outlook which is very, very popular in our culture today, isn't it? Study hard, get those good grades, get into a top university, get a good degree, secure the dream job, get a promotion, have a successful career, earn lots of money, build up your reputation, and then retire early. That's the dream, isn't it, that the world tries to sell us? That's what will fulfill you. That's where you can find your identity, in your work, in your career. That's what will give you lasting joy. That's what will give you significance, fulfillment, satisfaction, and gain under the sun. Bring about your own salvation through being a workaholic. And one of the highest compliments that our culture can bestow on a person is to say that they are a self-made man or woman. Uh, they've worked hard. They've made it for themselves. And again, the teacher is not saying that there's anything wrong with being hard working, Nothing wrong with being studious and industrious and productive. Again, we could turn to Proverbs for that other outlook and see how important it is to be hardworking and all the, the blessings that we enjoy as a result of that. But again, that's not the focus in Ecclesiastes, is it? The focus in Ecclesiastes is, yes, hard work brings blessings, and yet can hard work give me lasting joy and fulfillment here on earth in this fallen creation? And of course, the answer again is no, it cannot. And the reason is very simple. Death makes work vanity. Just as death makes wisdom vanity, vanity. It also makes work vanity. And in verses 18 to 23, the teacher shows us why work is vanity, why it is fleeting, why it is elusive, why it is unable to bring lasting joy and fulfillment. And the first reason is because you can't take it with you. The teacher says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. The teacher says, imagine working your whole life, employing all your wisdom and your intellect and your energy on your career. Maybe you have your own business. You build it up from nothing. You are that quintessential self-made man or woman. And so people in the business world look up to you. People congratulate you for your entrepreneurial skills and your business thrives. Maybe your business even achieves a lot of good in the world. And then you get struck down in your prime, maybe an accident or an illness. And very soon you're dead. And someone has to take the business on. And from the grave, of course, you cannot control that situation. And it just so happens that the business passes into the hands of an absolute fool. He doesn't deserve any credit at all. And yet he gets your whole business. The wise man worked for the business and then a few years later, the fool inherits it. Death is the great leveler, isn't it? Death makes work vanity in this sense. And you might say, well, what if I plan well for the future? What if I make sure that there is a good successor in place for the work that I'm going to leave behind? Well, be that as it may, the teacher says, nonetheless, you will still have to leave it to someone who didn't work for it. Verse 21, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil all that you worked so hard for in your life, everything you built up, everything you accumulated, everything you accomplished, you can't take any of it with you. Inevitably, it has to pass on to someone else who didn't work for it like you did. And that someone else might be a fool or they might be wise, but the point here is that that someone else is still someone else. Death is this great leveler of the wise and the fool, the industrious and the lazy, those who work and those who merely inherit. Death makes work vanity. And still you might say, well, okay, work doesn't give you fulfillment and satisfaction in the long term, but in the short term it does. I can be fulfilled in my work here. And again, the the teacher is not so convinced, is he? Look at verse 22. What has a man from all the, the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And the teacher opens the window onto the heart of the workaholic. That is the man or woman who is throwing themselves into their work and into their career, thinking that this is what will give them lasting joy, lasting fulfillment. And yet it's all vanity. It's all a striving after the wind. And on the inside, they're restless. They're anxious. They can never be at peace. Even when they're at home and they're they're meant to be enjoying time with their family, there's a restlessness to them. They, they just want to, to be out working. Or when they're on holiday and they're meant to be relaxing, they're, they're constantly checking their emails. Or in the middle of the night when they're meant to be sleeping and yet their mind is still busy, thinking about the next project, thinking about the next deadline, the next sales figures. And giving themselves to work just doesn't satisfy them. It leaves them restless, anxious. And that concludes this great experiment that the teacher had thrown himself into in his life. He has looked everywhere under the sun to desperately try and find something here on earth in this fallen creation which will give him true and lasting joy and fulfillment. Some gain, as he puts it. He looked everywhere and he has turned a blank. He looked in everything, didn't he? Wisdom, laughter, food, drink, sex, riches, a career. Nothing truly satisfies him. And so he has proved that statement that he started the book with. You remember it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life here on earth in this fallen creation under the sun is fleeting, and elusive, nothing really lasts, nothing really satisfies. So what is the conclusion then that he comes to at the end of this fruitless search? How should we go about living in this world that cannot truly satisfy us? Should you just give up on life? Should we be pessimistic? Well, no, of course not. And the teacher's conclusion is in verses 24 to 26. And I want to try and introduce this conclusion by way of an illustration. Imagine that you're 16 years old, you're still at school, and you're preparing for your GCSE exams. And for your English exam, you've been given a a particular novel to read, some classic novel. Your exam is going to be based on this novel. And so you need to read it, and study it, and make lots of notes on it, and get it all into your head, because this is the only way you're going to get through this exam. And if I can put it like this, you have a relationship of need with that book. That is, you need to get as much out of that book as you possibly can. That is what you need to get you through. And in that relationship of need, of course, you find it all to be a rather joyless experience. Writing all these notes, trying to squeeze every last drop of information out of that book. You need that book, but the truth is you don't really enjoy it. And then imagine that a few years later, you're you're going on your holidays one summer. And as you're packing your bags, you you think to yourself, well, I'd really like to have a book to read whilst I'm lying on the beach sunbathing. And and so you look on your bookshelf, uh, and there is that novel that you read as a teenager. And you, you think to yourself, well, maybe I'll just give it another go. And so you throw that book into your suitcase and you take it on holiday. And when you're on holiday, you start reading it. And... You find then that it is an altogether different experience. It's a great book, you can't put it down. It's a real page turner. And you see, the reason is that you have entered into a different kind of relationship with that book now. The relationship of need that you once had with that book was the very thing that stole the enjoyment out of it. And yet now you're set free from that relationship of need. And you're simply free to enjoy that book for what it is. It's the exact same book. Now you have a relationship of enjoyment with it rather than a relationship of need. Do you see the the two different ways that you relate to it and the two different experiences that come as a result of those two relationships? And this is what the teacher is getting us to understand. He's saying, here under the sun, we live in a world with so many good things around us. Food, drink, careers, wealth, pleasure, and so forth. And there are two very different ways in which you can relate to those things. Because on the one hand, you could enter into a relationship of need with them. And that is, you look at the things of this world and all that it has to offer, and you say to yourself, I need those things to make me happy. I need to get as much or as many of those things as I possibly can because that's what I need to get me through. That's what I need to give me lasting joy and fulfillment. I need a partner to fulfill my longing for love. I need sex to fulfill my longing for pleasure. I need more friends to fulfill my longing for acceptance. I need money to fulfill my longing for security. I need junk food to fulfill my longing for comfort. I need alcohol to fulfill my longing for joy. I need a career to fulfill my longing for identity. I need holidays to fulfill my longing for peace and rest. And in other words, you treat those things as your gods. You depend on them. You need them to save you and to satisfy you. And as the teacher found out, when you enter into that relationship of need, with these things. It is all futile. And eventually your relationship with those things and those people become a source of enslavement and pain and frustration to you because you're desperately trying to squeeze more satisfaction out of them than they could ever possibly give to you. And so inevitably they disappoint you in the end. And the relationship of need that you have with them is the very thing that steals the enjoyment from you. Derek Kidner puts it like this. He says, in themselves and rightly used, the basic things of life are sweet and good. What spoils them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. And you see, when someone becomes a a Christian, their relationship with these things changes radically. That relationship of need is broken. They're set free from it. Because you don't need those things in the same way anymore. You don't need the things of this world to fulfill all of your longings for love, pleasure, acceptance, security, comfort, joy, identity, peace, and rest. Because you've discovered that all of those things are found in Jesus. It's all in him. And you discover that even death itself, even death itself, that great leveler, cannot rob you of these things because Jesus has conquered death on your behalf. And that changes then the way that you relate to the things of this world, doesn't it? That relationship of need is gone. You're set free from that. And now you enter into a relationship of enjoyment of these things now. Because now you realize that all these good things that surround us in this creation were never intended to save us, never intended to satisfy us ultimately. But you see that they are, in actual fact, gifts from God, given for our enjoyment. That's what Paul says to Timothy, isn't it? First Timothy 6, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's the kind of relationship God wants you to have with the things in this world. Not a relationship of need, but a relationship of enjoyment. Earlier on in that same letter, in chapter four, Paul said to Timothy, everything created by God is Good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And you see, as a Christian, the way you relate to the good things of this world is then transformed. The relationship of need has gone and this relationship of thankful enjoyment has begun. And you know, this is one of the the main differences between the experience of, of living as a Christian in this world compared to living as a non-Christian in this world. To put it starkly, non-Christians need the things of this world more. And for that very reason, they enjoy them less. And as Christians, we need the things of this world less. For that very reason, we enjoy them more. We really do. Because we receive them for what they really are. Gifts from our generous God to be received with thanksgiving and enjoyed in line with his will and for his glory. And you see in verses 24 and following, the teacher is calling us to turn away from this futile relationship of need for the things of this world. As if they could ever truly save us or satisfy us. As if there was any lasting gain under the sun. And instead, he's inviting us to enter into this relationship of enjoyment of the things of this world. Enjoy them because they are God's gifts to us, to be received with glad and thankful hearts. So the teacher writes, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment?' For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. This is wonderfully liberating, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you don't need the things of this world to satisfy and save you. Because Jesus himself is your joy and he is your salvation. But in God's goodness and kindness and generosity towards us, We're free now to enjoy the good things of this world as gifts from him received with thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you because you are the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And scripture tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from you. And Paul tells us that everything created by you is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And indeed, as Paul says, you have given us everything to enjoy. And so we praise you for your generosity and your kindness towards us. And all around us in this world, we see tokens of your goodness to us. And we confess that as fallen people, we are prone to thinking that these good gifts are what we need to save us and satisfy us. We're prone to idolizing them. We treat them as gods. We use them sinfully. And we discover that it is futile. They can never satisfy us truly. And ultimately, they cannot solve the problem of Death. And we thank you therefore that we have a saviour Jesus who alone can satisfy us and save us and who has beaten death on our behalf. And so help us to turn away from putting our hopes in the things of this world and help us instead to put all of our trust and to find all of our deepest joy in Jesus alone. And then with thankful hearts help us to receive and enjoy the good things that you provide us with however much or however little. Help us to enjoy them and receive them with thanksgiving and to do so for your glory. And in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.